In just a moment, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 14. So if you have a copy of God's Word, you can go ahead and turn to that passage. That's where we're going to be looking. Uh, before we do get there, let's just pause and take in some of the ideas that we just sang about, that, that we've received great pardon from God, and it's a pardon that we need, that all of us stand on equal ground in our circumstance of need. So wherever you're coming from this week, whether you felt uh, like it was just the best week of your life or you're just straggling to get in here, welcome. I'm glad you're here. Uh, if you're new in this space, we've prayed for you. We've prayed for this space and everybody that would be in it, but especially um, for you if you're new to this space. And I just want to welcome you especially and say... Um, we'd love to know that you're here. So if, you're, if you are uh, visiting with us online for the first time, you can drop a comment and uh, let us know that you're watching. If you're new in this space today, there's a card in the seat back in front of you. We'd love for you to fill it out and drop it into the give boxes on your way out, and we will contact you in a respectful way. Now, as we get into this text, we've been in Genesis. This is week number seven. So if you're new in the room or just new to us, we've been kind of working up to this point through Genesis where we would get to a place and hear God's uh, judgment over what they've done, over what Adam and Eve have done. And so we're going to get into it, but you're kind of landing here uh, halfway up the hill that we're climbing. So you're kind of coming in midstream. And so I want to welcome you in that and also just acknowledge that, hey, maybe it feels like you're kind of catching up and it's okay. It's all right, wherever you're coming from. So let's read God's word together and then also ask that as we read it, that our hearts would be ready to receive it. So pray that with me as I read these words from God's word, starting in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, Surely I will multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return." The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He, was drove, he drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that today, by your power and your grace, that you would increase our appetite for redemption. That we would see both in these judgments and consequences what we were made for and what you're reconciling us to in our salvation. And so I pray that these words would not only illuminate who you are in your grace and in your judgment, that they would bring life to us, Lord. I pray that you would empower my words so that your Holy Spirit would have his way. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In 1928, in the northern part of Brazil, along the Amazon River Basin, they had experienced this financial boom with the export of rubber from these rubber trees. They had tapped the trees, and they were primarily growing in that area of the world, and so there's suddenly this need for rubber because there's a production of cars going wild and rampant. But eventually the seeds to the tree were taken. They were smuggled out of the country, and suddenly the thing that was exclusively theirs that had caused economic boom becomes uh, not so much economic boom for them. Other people are exporting rubber at this point. So now what suddenly had boosted their economy is now like in a place of drought. Word began to spread that something new was coming to their area. The landscape of industry was about to change. And in the midst of their disappointment, of their quick boom and decline, Henry Ford, founder of the Ford Motor Company, had revolutionized the car industry. Suddenly he's saying, I'm going to come and build a town in the middle of the jungle. It's going to employ 10,000 people. And he wasn't just deporting cars. He wanted to import to this people a kind of utopia. His plan was to basically bring to the Amazon what he thought the American dream could be anywhere. So he develops this place called Fordlandia. He receives the rights to commercially operate about 5,000 square mile tract of land in the middle of Brazil in the jungle on a tributary of the Amazon so that he could establish his own rubber plantation, okay? And while construction had started in about 1926, uh, the hopes of employing these 10,000 people, and he built their houses, and he built the factories, he built their grocery stores, he built everything, and they all come in, and this new project that was supposed to be this amazing place where people in some other place could live the American dream, suddenly it begins to be riddled with problems. Because they didn't want to be flooded, they had to build their, their project up on the highland. And so the only way to get with, to it with supplies was when the waters were high. So the only way to get up the river was to wait until the floodlands came, and then the floods would come, and they would come up in just one season of the year to deliver supplies. This meant that a lot of food that they would get was like rotten by the time it got there. So people that were employed were suddenly revolting and saying, this food is disgusting. This isn't working for us. All of the seeds that they were planting so that they could have all these rubber trees were just riddled with problems. There was disease and parasites that were happening. He built the factory. The people moved in. They planted the trees. But in all of it, something began to corrupt the idea that he had. All the workers grew more and more hostile. Six short years later, it's completely inhabited to completely abandoned. Can you imagine a town that would hold 10,000 people? By 1945, it's considered a failure. They leave the area. The land is handed back over to the Brazilian government. And by the end, the Ford Motor Company had sank about $20 million into the project, which would be the equivalent of like $288 million of today's money. 
Can you imagine? And maybe you haven't tried to set up some utopian colony. Like, I'm not, I'm not assuming that that's you. But all of us have felt the ruins of places like this in our life, where we had great anticipation, our dreams, and, and hopes of what this life was supposed to be. And we feel the ruins, just like this city on the screen. And if we're honest, all of us feel like something is wrong with the world. That the world is not only full of great potential, but there's something mysteriously precarious about every place that you put your foot. There's something wrong with it. All of us have enough experience to know this, no matter how young you are. There's something ingrained in our history where we know that this world is not as it should be. But why is this the case? How we understand the problem that we all have experienced will also absolutely determine what solutions we come up, what antidotes we come up to to solve the problem. The antidotes that we suggest to ourselves and to others and what we're exporting to say, here's what the real problem is. So it's really important to us to understand how the Bible explains what's wrong with the world. And it matters because not only can we understand what Jesus came to save us from, we can't understand that unless we understand what the problem is he came to redeem. So in order to understand our redemption in Christ, what Christ is beginning to accomplish in his life, death, and resurrection, we have to understand what's been undone by sin. What God is currently remaking and promising to remake in our future cannot fully be hoped for or understood or grabbed onto unless we see what the problem is. So last week we talked about how Adam and Eve, their natural and immediate consequences for sin was to cover over themselves, to hide in the bushes, and to, to cast blame on each other. And now, this week, this text is not just talking about the natural consequences of the world that God has made. It's talking about the immediate consequences of how God could say, this is my judgment about the decision that you've made to rebel against me. So this week we're going to look at how God distributes and describes the consequences of sin. How does God distribute these consequences and describe their repercussions? So, before we get into the curses around sin, I want us to begin with a recap of God's blessing because we can't understand what he's doing unless we go back to the very beginning and say, okay, what is becoming undone? Because it's already been described in chapter 1. The blessing it's really quite uh, understood. It's really hard to understand. Some of us think of the blessing as the prayer before meals. That blessing or some mysterious favor that somehow God puts on us. But from the beginning of history, the way that God has acted in this, in this world has been through making a declaration that involves people. These are called covenants that, that include requirements, that means obligations and restrictions, prohibitions, and with those covenants, all of them include blessings and curses. So from the very beginning, the only way we can understand this is to see what was God blessing them with from the start. This, he'd given them both favorable circumstances, yes, but the first blessing comes not to man and woman, but to a group of creatures. Anybody remember chapter 1, verse 22? He says, I'm going to bless. He makes the birds and the fish, and he's like, 
He blessed them, and then he gave the birds and the fish a command. He said, I want you to multiply and increase and fill all the spaces that I've created for you. So he creates these three different arenas and spaces, and then specifically the sea and the air. And he gives this blessing to the fish and the birds, and he says, I want you to fill it up. So the blessing, his favor, came with a command. And it comes on down to verse 28. In the same way, he begins to bless a second part of creation. It says this, God blessed them. It's talking about man and woman. Him, him speaking this blessing over them says this, And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And the thing that I want you to see in this verse, while it's still up there, is this. There was a blessing that came with a command. Now, what I want you to see, too, is that God's disposition towards creation is good. It's pleasurable. He delights in it. After each day, he's saying, this is very good. So his first disposition towards creation is favorable and commendation and saying, I like it. I love this place that I've made. I love these people that I made. And I want to point out that there's a specific type of blessing that was connected to people doing what they were made to do. So even though this is God's primary disposition of blessing, it's not all that there is to God. And so this, this uh, beautiful picture that we get to see of God's heart in chapters 1 and chapter 2 begins to bring in some more complexity and diversity into how we understand his character. And then before we move into his judgments, I want to remind you that, that his disposition is delight. That is his resting face towards creation, okay? He looks at creation and says, this is good. And his disposition continues to be delight and blessing towards humanity as we obey him, as we fulfill the covenants that he's commanded over our lives. And so he's not only affected uh, and designed a world so that sin and it results to be bad for us, he's made things that inside of creation, as they exist, he hates them. And he wants us to see what his disposition is, not only towards creation as designed it, but the result of creation and sin. And so he's letting us see his heart, not just what he loves, but also what he hates. And so as I begin to talk about judgment, I want to acknowledge that there could be a number of reasons that you come into this room and you're immediately closed to this idea that God is a judge. Now, regardless of your story of some person like trying to coerce you because God being judged, if you come in with some kind of story of that, I'm really sorry. The primary resistance we would have to God being judged is because we all know that there's some way in which our lives will be measured by God. I would say that that's the primary reason we're resistant to this idea. We've grown more uncomfortable and more uncomfortable and more uncomfortable with the idea of sin and God's judgments, our own misery inside of this. It's an interesting phenomenon. In fact, in 1979, the common book of prayer uh, from the Episcopal Church, they removed this phrase, miserable offenders to God's grace. They said, this is, this is too off-putting, okay? And many of us today would still be kind of baffled by the language of miserable offenders. It feels like, ooh, I might need to talk to my therapist about that after we do this, okay? But here's what I want to suggest before we talk through this dynamic for us who believe. 
Sometimes we resist this idea of hearing God's judgment because we do not yet understand his provision for us. I'm going to say that twice because that's the primary reason. Not just because we're sinners. It's because we don't understand God's provision for us. That's why we would resist the idea of God's judgment over us because we don't yet understand that he's already made provision for those in Christ. So the gravity of God's holiness, his justice, his judgment, the terrible consequences of sin can only become clear to us. We will only look at them and let them become clear to us on the other side of God's grace. Now, we might be afraid of God, but we don't peer into the chasm of his judgment. We're like, that is scary. I don't want to look there unless we know that it's been absolved through Jesus Christ. So when that happens, we can stand on this side of God's grace and say, okay, Teach me everything there is to know about this. I want to know what you're like, God. So we can stare into it and not feel so threatened by it because God has made a merciful provision for us. So the gravity of these things, if you're coming into the room and you do not understand why we talk about God's judgment, I want, to just, I want you to imagine that there's people in the room who can peer at this and say, God, you're still good. This is still who you are. This is part of your character. And so today, if you're not a believer, I want you to imagine for a moment why in the world or how could we possibly rejoice in the idea of God's character like this. And for us who believe, the reason we can look at it is because it makes his payment for our sin so much sweeter. It makes his provision for us seem much more profound. We're undone by the idea that he would pay that for us, that he would take that judgment upon himself, and that he would begin to undo and reverse the curse for everyone who believes. And so we look at the curse and say, yes, we've experienced it, we know that reality, and we can look straight into the face of this idea of a God who's just because we already know he's provided for our payment for that justice, okay? So for everyone in Christ, we're going to just look at it, we're going to sit in it, And if it makes you uncomfortable, just watch the other people around you who trust Jesus, and they will be much less uncomfortable than you, okay? Just watch them and imagine what it must be like to peer into God's justice and judgment from the other side of his mercy. So let's look at it. Starting in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. First observation about God's judgment is that he begins where they've left off with the blame. God doesn't leave any one of them out. So he asked them, what did you do? Who told you you were naked? Adam says, the woman that you gave. And he asked the woman, what did you do? The serpent deceived me. And they're all shifting the blame. But God says, I'm not leaving any of you out. And he starts with the serpent. He begins first with the first culprit. He says, look, yes, you deceived her. And because you did this, there's going to be consequences. First, the serpent. The first curse would be that he would be low. He had grasped at some type of attention and power away from God to to, uh, coerce God's children and his image bearers into following what he would tell them to do instead of God's command. And because of this, he's going to be low. That's the first curse. Above all the other created things, above every other beast of the field, he's going to be the lowest. So at the top of the list of low things, he's the lowest. 
Next thing, the lament that he would be, have enmity with their offspring forever. That there would always be this strife and hatred and battle between the woman's offspring and him. And I'm going to come back to the promise in that because I know you're all like just dying to get there. 315. <laughs> so before I move on, I want every one of us in this room, we have a real enemy that's seeking to steal, kill, and destroy us. You guys were born into a battlefield. Some of you felt it. Some of you didn't even know it. But you were born in the midst of an epic battle. And that's what he's describing here. There's been moments where you kind of saw through the veil and thought, man, this is really hard. This is really tough. It's sobering. What he's describing. Then he moves on to verse 16. The woman. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The consequence of her sin was first that the blessing God had given them, the command and the purpose, the thing that she was made for, to work with her husband, to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it, to bring dominion over the earth. The first command of God was to multiply, to be fruitful and multiple. And now, at the very place where she was supposed to fill this great purpose, there was judgment. There was a hurdle because of sin. He's going to multiply her pain and childbearing. This word is not just, uh, it's actually different than labor. There's another word for labor. This word means conception. So there would be difficulty in conceiving. There would be difficulty in bringing forth children. It wouldn't be as God intended. Not only that, in childbearing, now if anybody's had kids, you know that this is not limited to the pain of childbearing, okay? Like bringing them forth into the world is going to be laden with complexities. Parenthood itself is tainted. Every loss you've ever felt from difficulty to conceive to miscarriage to child rearing, all of it doesn't result in the dreams that you wanted. It just results from this place. There's a degree to which the materials we're working with are now corrupted in all of this. And then the lament continues. He begins to describe what, his, what her relationship with her husband was going to be like. Between you and your husband, the role that you play in this great blessing of bringing it to the world is going to be contentious. God's blessing and commission was to, to them both. It wasn't just that they were going to make babies and work to fill up the world. It was also that they were going to bring dominion to the world. He said, now every piece of the fabric of this is now going to be tainted by the reality that your relationship with your husband is going to be contrary to him. And he's going to rule over you. Her desires will be contrary. He's going to rule in a way that didn't reflect God's image. And his intention for them was that they would be displaying his image, the Trinity's union and cooperation and glory and honor between them. And he lays that on them, and now it feels like really hard. Maybe some of you are on the edge of giving up right now and you misunderstand the problem that you're dealing with. I just want to remind you that whatever these family relationships feel like to you, you have a very real enemy and there is a very real curse in this place. To Adam, he begins to address him, not just because he listened, but also because he ate. For both of them, the verdict is that he's being judged and he looks at, look at verse 17, it says this, Cursed is the ground because of you. 
and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you were dust. To dust you shall return. A few ways that this, I just want to point out the consequence of sin. Number one, the ground itself is cursed. The background and landscape for God's call on his life is now going to not yield the things it's supposed to yield. He was going to cultivate it and have this amazing vocation. God's blessing to them was attached to his vocation, and now this judgment is in the very place that his calling was. God had given him this task to subdue the earth and to cultivate and curate and continue to make provision. And now that provision of bread, with every loaf of bread that he eats, it's going to be by the sweat of his brow and eventually he's going to return to dust. So the ground is cursed, resulting in pain and sweat and death eventually. And then the last judgment is the removal. He's saying, you cannot be in the garden. You cannot be in the place that my glory dwells. You can't walk with me as you once did. And he removes him from the garden. Why are they removed? So that they'll not have this eternal life. He says, I don't want to eat from this tree and live like this forever. The resulting consequences of sin are not just that they felt ashamed and that they covered themselves and hid from God. Their sin divided them from God himself. And the access to him in his good place was broken. Death and separation. I just want to be still for a moment and acknowledge that every one of us in this room have felt these things. Maybe the difficulty in conception or in parenthood, the impossibility of cooperation in marriage. Have you ever felt the challenge of your work? You sow good things, it brings thistles. And you know that you're called to something only to feel like your efforts yield more bad things than good. You ever felt that? So what do we say? Is this just our lot? Is there any hope? Yes. Before I get to the hope, though, I want you to know the grief we feel in this broken place is shared. I'm going to move forward, but God, who knows completely the design of his world, the beauty, he grieves much more fully the loss of these things than we do. He understands what's been lost much more fully than we do. There's this moment in the Chronicles of Narnia. I know, if you're not into like magical things, I'm sorry. In the first book, The Magician's Nephew, uh, there's this boy named Diggory who's losing his mom. She's dying. And he has this conversation with Aslan. That's the lion who's kind of the Christ-type figure in the story. And Diggory is begging for his mother's life. He's saying, will you please just do something to save her? conversation's going to be on the screen. He says this, but please, please, won't you, can't you give me something to cure my mother? Up until then, he had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. Now, in his despair, he looked up at his face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own in wonder of wonders. Great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. 
They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. My son, my son, said Aslan, I know grief is great. Now today, if you feel that the world is broken, before I move into just the solution for this, I want to sit in this for a moment and remind you that there's one who sees the terrible loss of sin much more completely than you. He feels it much more extremely than you. You're not alone in your lament. The terrible curse that's been laid on this world, God is with us and he sees it. And it fills him with much more grief than you could possibly imagine. So is that it though? Does he just grieve with us? Is that the end of the story? No, it's not the end of the story. I want us to consider all the ways that we see God's promise and provision throughout this judgment. The first one is in verse 15. It'll be on the screen. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The first place in the Bible where there's there's this echo of promise that would be laced throughout the rest of God's word, that the judgment was also given to us with this great hope that the one creeping and the one walking would eventually come to blows and the guy walking is going to win. I love this picture, not because this ever happened or because it's actually a real thing, but it just stirs my imagination. This is Mary consoling Eve. And as incomplete, and before we bring all of our religious critique for this for a moment, just take it in for a moment. If we could bear witness to any conversation in all history, I would love to hear what Mary would say to Eve at the great pinnacle of Christ's arrival. What would she say? What would we hear? And even if our imagination is limited to what she would say to him, the reason I put up this image is because it depicts the curse beginning to be removed, beginning to be reversed at Christ's arrival the echo of what had been promised. And listen, there's all kinds of art about serpents' heads being crushed. That's the reason it's on like every hospital. That's everywhere. Because we're hoping that somehow there's a remedy for this thing. We're hoping that there's some kind of antidote, right? So what is the promise? Listen, God's word is sufficient and he gives us plenty to deal with. I just like that picture. In understanding the curse, we understand what our redemption came to undo. God's promise and provision is this, that the enemy is one day going to be defeated. Yes, you were born into a battlefield. You were born in the midst of an epic war. But there's this promise. John Calvin says, why is God addressing Satan? And he offers this answer. Because God might revive the fainting minds of men and restore them when they're oppressed by despair. It became necessary to promise them in their posterity victory over Satan through whose wiles they'd been ruined. They're looking at it going, are we doomed? Like he's always going to deceive us from this point forward? No, that's not what's going to happen. And then he goes on to say, he does this for twofold reason. First, that men might learn to be aware of Satan as a most deadly enemy. And then second, that they might contend against him with the assured confidence of victory. He gives us that promise in the midst of this judgment so that we'd know that even though there's going to be strife for the number of our days, it's becoming undone through Jesus Christ. There's a victory that's already already been given. Maybe not yet realized. Yes, you did. You were born in the midst of battle. 
But one day, you can contend because one day, you, you can absolutely be confident of this, that he'll be locked up forever. And for those that are in Christ, we're looking forward to a victory that's already been won in past tense. Those beyond Christ, we understand that he's already done this. We live in the in-between of when he's still kind of running around, defeated. Yeah, you were born in a battlefield, but your redemption comes with a promise. Moving on, the rest of the judgments and consequences point out a future promise. All of us have felt this. We feel the weight of it. And we also say, this is not what we were made for. In parenthood, no one who's ever given birth has said, this is good that there's pain. No one said that, okay? No one's ever said in marriage, when you feel contrary to everything your spouse says, no one's ever said, this is okay, this is good, this is what we were intended for. And in each of those places, God is showing us in his judgment that this isn't what you were made for. In other words, number two, observation. Not only will there be victory, but broken relationships weren't the original design. That's not what he intended. What God is coming to undo in our redemption is the brokenness of these spaces. That in marriage, in understanding the curse, we understand our redemption so that we can demonstrate the unity and diversity of God's image in the Trinity in the spaces where we love one another and family. We look at each other and say, look, I'm distinct. I'm different from you. We're going to cooperate. In Ephesians chapter 5, mutual submission. Submission to headship and living with our wives in an understanding way instead of ruling over them. God is undoing and reversing what's been said in the curse. Number three, what is this promise and provision? Well, now everything you're supposed to do is going to be really hard. <laughs> well, here, here's the promise and provision of that. Your, your vocation wasn't supposed to be as frustrating as it is. Not that it always is. Look, there's some of you that are like, I love my job. I love my work. That's great. That's just a little, it's a little uh, echo of what's coming, Okay. Maybe you get like a little taste of it here and there. There's one day coming where all of our work will be redeemed and those moments that are maybe a little bit tainted but mostly glorious, that's just a gift of God's grace. And so your work can now be worship because of what Christ is undoing in redemption. So still part of the curse. <laughs> your work's going to be tough. Sweat of your face. You're not only going to produce bread, but every bread that you eat is eventually going to lead you so that you return to the dust, death, the physical death. The conclusion of the curse is that you're going to have to make bread. It's going to be really hard. You're eating the bread. It's going to be sweaty, painful, tough, and eventually you're going to die. The consequence for their sin was not only that their vocation would be complex, but their vocation would be complex until the day they returned to the dust. And the last thing is this. He's not just redeeming our vocation and provision for us in life. God's offering his presence to us through Christ. Now, his presence, this good place, this Eden, it was intended for us to be enjoying. I mean, we, wanted, we were supposed to enjoy walking and being with God, living eternally with him. And now that place, it wasn't destroyed. He didn't just say, okay, it's over. Get rid of Eden. No, he guarded it. He guarded over it. And in that reality, all of us are longing for return to that place. Don't you feel homesick? Don't you feel like there's some other place you were made to live? That you long for to the return to that place? 
And all of us, through our grief in these things, not only because we know we are made for something different, we know we were made for a different place in God's presence, in perfect communion with Him. And so every meal that we eat that's toiled over, every, every food that we place on the table that we're like, I guess that's going to be our provision for today. It's enough. All the difficulty. Much later, many days later, Jesus shows up and says this in his gospel. And for those that were familiar with the poetry of the curse, they would have heard bread and death and eternal life and said, we've heard some things like this before. John chapter 6, he says this, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, people had been following him and they were starting to be like a little concerned, okay? Like, this is getting weird, Jesus. This is getting really weird. We don't know. Then he says this, verse 57 and 58. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread that our fathers ate and died. Doesn't that sound a little bit like the curse? You're going to eat bread every day, but in the end you'll be dust. He's saying it's going to be different than that. You can eat from me and live. Now it still was really confusing, and all his disciples are going, Jesus, there's a lot of people leaving, okay? Jesus looks at his disciples after everybody's leaving him alone, saying this is getting really weird. And he's like, are you guys going to leave me too? What about you, Peter? Are you going to leave me? And Peter says, no, look at this. So Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. In other words, Peter was granted this insight in that the curse was somehow getting reversed with Jesus. He might not have understood what Jesus was talking about. He said, nowhere else can we go for eternal life. And here's what I want to say to you. There's, if we understand that this is the problem with the world, we're going to understand the exclusive nature by which Jesus is answering this problem. If we think that some other list of things are the problem, then we're going to always be striving for that list of things to fix the problem. And Jesus is saying, I'm it. This is the, this is the only provision that there is. Maybe you're thinking like that the lack of government or the overreach of government is the problem. Whichever it is, here's the thing I'm telling you. Sin is the problem. In the complexities of both, sin is the problem. So whatever government solutions we come up with, they're not going to solve the problem. We have to understand that God has described what our problem is. It doesn't mean we shouldn't participate in those things. If you think that education is the problem, then you're going to think that some educational solution is the antidote to what the issue is. And you're going to think, if we could just educate this group of people, if we could just tell them these things, and if they, maybe they could learn, then we'll see the solution and the antidote. No, it will not work. Jesus is saying, I'm the only way to have life. I'm the only way for the curse to be reversed. He's just going to say, if you think that your trauma is the, the root of the problem. I'm not dismissing what's happened to you. I'm just saying that no amount of counseling will ever answer what Jesus Christ has answered in himself as he offers himself to us as the ultimate remedy. He's the solution. He's the antidote. I don't dismiss any of those three things. I'm saying we have to understand the foundation of the problem for any of them to connect us to Christ himself. We have to understand this is what God's describing as our problem. And so I want to ask you this question in conclusion. Have you received God's provision? I don't need to ask you if you felt the curse. 
I already know you have. I know that you feel it, okay? I know you feel it. Have you experienced the curse being reversed for you? Has the life that God intended begun to to pierce through the darkness in you? Is God changing you? Because listen, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. All this is from God. Christ is reconciling us to himself and gave us a ministry of reconciliation because God was reconciling the world. That means all of creation to him through Christ. And he's given us that message. The message of reconciliation is, hey, everybody, we weren't made for this this kind of toil. It's really hard. We know. The message of reconciliation is that Christ can make things new. Maybe not completely in this world. We're going to feel the tension because we haven't yet shown up face to face. He hasn't either called us home or shown up on the scene. But he's given us enough of his presence so that we can have these little echoes of the curse being reversed in our marriage, in our homes, in our church, in every space that we occupy. We can begin to see this piercing the darkness. Our enemy will soon be defeated. Our homes could be both fruitful and cooperative, mutually submitting and living one another in a respectable way. Our work is being redeemed as worship, and our deaths is only a deliverance to eternal life. And in all these things, we get to reflect God's glory as image bearers. I'm on a text thread with some pastors, and there's this older pastor named Scotty, and he texted this to me this week. He said this, you know why it hurts so bad? Whatever our it is, we're made for life of Eden. And we ache for the fullness of Jesus' kingdom. May our pain fuel our compassion and gratitude, not fear and resentment. To groan inwardly and wait eagerly, patiently, is a work of the Spirit and the gospel. That's the work of the gospel. He's creating us this groaning for something else, and he's referencing Romans chapter 8. I'm ending, I promise. Romans chapter 8, verse 22 says this, For we know that whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for those who hope for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So what's the solution? Yes, Christ is the only solution. And he fills us with anticipation that leads to patience and hope. May that be true of us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this, your word. I pray that it would seal in our hearts a real hope for the curse being reversed. And I pray this for the sake of your name, Jesus. Amen.